Hello and welcome to Unsafe Space. My name is Carrie Smith. You are watching Deprogrammed, which is a show where we do sort of a deep dive into my old belief system, social justice. Today I'm joined by a new friend, Josh Slocum. Uh, he is the host of the Disaffected podcast, which only started in January and is already gaining a steady uh, subscriber base. Uh, I appeared on his show recently and and I'm so excited to have you here today, Josh. Welcome. Thank you. Um, so on this show, usually what we do is when we kind of just delve into social justice, is that something that you have any experience with? Do you want to tell people a little bit about this, the Disaffected podcast first, and then we can get into your background? Uh, uh, sure. Uh, the, the podcast, it is, um, you know, I kind of resent even calling it a podcast. This is just a little aside, but I do these sorts of things. It's sort of like, I mean, it is a podcast, but it, it's really, it's, it, it's just a talk show. You know, it's it's a one man yeah. talk show or 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 sometime uh, we had you on, of course, which uh, got a lot of viewers. But it sort of reminds it would be like if everybody, you know, um, it's a term based on a particular brand name product that's not even manufactured anymore. But now the entire format is called podcast. <laughs> <laughs> like if you imagine like, oh, I have a show. Oh, don't you mean you have a cassette show? <laughs> I love that this bothers you. <laughs> oh, well, let me count the ways. <laughs> I haven't uh, actually thought about it before, but you're right. <laughs> you know, it's it's Apple. It's that evil company Apple getting its tendrils into everything. Yeah. Um so well, the show's so been so that people the show's are clear been happening for... since January. Okay. The show's been happening since January. And can you tell people a little bit about the, the topics that you cover? What's the theme of Disaffected? It's all cluster B all the time. Um, the theme of this show is looking at what is happening in our political landscape. And I, I often introduce the show saying, you know, it's happening most acutely in social justice activism or the woke left or the social justice left. But that's, it seems to me that it's, that's even less and less accurate um, because what was, what was woke becomes mainstream left almost immediately these days. Um, I don't know if you see it that way, Carrie, but I, I see less of a distinction between the woke fringe left and the mainstream left because every, every overreach Every repositioning, uh, every questioning of facts that we knew yesterday, as soon as somebody utters it with confidence who has a name in social justice, it becomes a plank of everyday Democrats walking around. They just say it's true. So the yes. point of the show is looking at that. My thesis and the thesis of the show is that there is a certain kind of psychology that is interwoven, that is the fundamental basis of the woke left's project. And that psychology is what we call cluster B, cluster B personality disorders. A lot of people watching or listening will not have heard the term, but you do know what I'm talking about, even though you don't think you do. If you have ever known, if you had an abusive parent, if you had an abusive husband or wife, if you had a friend who turned out to be a backstabber who engaged in smear campaigns against you, uh, was duplicitous with you, if you've had um, a boss who undermined you and made you be the fall guy or the fall woman uh, in order to climb the corporate ladder, 
you very likely had a cluster B personality disordered person in your life. This is the psychology of abusive parents, both male and female, the psychology of abusive spouses. Um, and the way into it for most people, most people have heard of at least one of the, there are four cluster B disorders, right? They are borderline personality disorder, narcissistic, histrionic, and antisocial. And antisocial is a synonym for psychopath or sociopath. So if you know what psychopaths and sociopaths are, you already know a little bit about cluster B, but it's very important to understand that is not the entire universe of cluster B. Cluster B comes from the American Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It's an American classification. It may be known by other names in a European scheme. But these four personality disorders are known as the erratic and dramatic personality disorders. They are a very warped form of psychology that is pervasive in a person's life who has one of these disorders. So we're not talking about the kind of mental illness that most people watching us right now think when they use the term mental illness. It's not depression, it's not anxiety, and it, no, it's not bipolar. Mm -hmm. um, personality disorders are what they say on the label. They are disorders of personality. Yes, this is referring to the core components of a person. There's something wrong fundamentally with that person. It's not like a passing depression that can impinge on your life, even a bad depression, you know, even, you know, people that you wouldn't think of as people who are ordinarily stable, but have had periods of major depression, sometimes even including the necessity to be hospitalized for a time. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is far deeper and far worse. Yeah. You were the first person I heard refer to personality disorders as a character disorder that they used to be called character disorders and i never heard that term for them before although i am as you know i have become familiar with some of these personality disorders in the past few years um, of learning more about them and um when i heard you say character disorder it just something about that seemed so right it's like yes it's about how they behave it's about who they who they are in the world like it's about uh, their character yeah it's yeah, we are talking about a person's character. It's interesting. Um, I think the change in terminology probably had to do with some of the same motivations that are constantly changing terminology for unpleasant things. You know, Steven Pinker calls this the euphemism treadmill. As soon as the actual negative nature, the negative concept actually catches up with the name and people start saying, hey, that means this bad thing. Then they come up with a new name because all of a sudden we're stigmatizing. Yes. Right. <laughs> right? They do that with uh, the terms for social justice. I don't know. Yeah. If, I'm sure you've seen that. They don't want you to name it anything. And, no, and they, cer they certainly don't want you to name it anything that has a negative connotation. So yeah. psychologists fall for this, too. And, and they're they're in a difficult position, mental health professionals, because in order to be useful to clients who need their help, they do have an interest in not having the clients perceive them as hostile or overtly judgmental, right? That's a legitimate therapeutic interest. But that interest is in direct conflict with what I am trying uh, to bring to people. My position on this, I do not have a therapist's interest in this. I am not concerned about, I am somewhat indirectly, 
but I am not primarily concerned. It's not my job and it's not my competence with healing people with cluster mm -hmm. B disorders. In my scheme, they are the aggressors. They are the dangerous ones. And my sympathy lies with you and me and everybody else out there who suffers the abuse that these people dish out. It is not my job to care about what happens to them. That doesn't mean I want terrible things to happen to them. But that whole sort of, well, don't stigmatize has caused a lot of problems in society. Yeah. Right? Because a lot of behaviors that should be stigmatized because they are selfish, they are destructive, they are unhealthy, and they can warp and derange the minds of children, particularly. These should be highly shamed and highly stigmatized. We should, yeah. But our contemporary culture wants to say, have sympathy for them, right? They're sick people. Well, are they? This or are is they bad? The, yeah, this is one of the dangers I've seen in social justice um, is that it makes, because it's an ideology that's sort of built around this idea that we're all struggling for, life is a struggle for power among identity groups. Well, they continually find these new identity groups and they put them all in the oppressor or oppressed categories. So now they view if you have a mental health issue or a mental illness, you're oppressed. And, and so and if you don't, you're the oppressor. And so it encourages people, I think, not, not only to stay in any mental health problems they might have, but to even develop them. Because then it's like this badge of honor of like, hi, I'm in a, an oppressed group. This is my identity. I'm oppressed. And they sort of hold it up as as a status. They put it in their bios on Twitter, you know, whatever their <laughs> mental health issues are. And uh, I think that's definitely one of the the problems with the ideology. But but you were the first very first person I ever heard. And you're the only podcast I know of that has the um, that looks at social justice from from the angle, from the lens that you do. You're the first person I heard talking about social justice ideology being um similar to or or maybe um maybe put forth by people with these cluster b personality disorders no one had ever said it that explicitly and and i i was wondering if you could walk people through like what are some of the for anyone who's not familiar what are some of the traits of the cluster B personality disordered person, what are some of the behaviors that you see reflected in social justice ideology? Sure. <laughs> so there's there's a lot of gray areas, um, and you can look at these things through one or two different lenses or more lenses. Uh, but we do have to establish some boundaries, right? Right. We do have right. to make some decisions. So. Um, the, the cluster B personality disorders are called the erratic and dramatic personality disorders. They are they all share a lot of traits in common. They're not all the same, but they are not. They're not all entirely different either. So in my view, like you take we'll take the two, quote unquote, extremes and people can fall into different um, categories here. It's not the case that, OK, I know this person has histrionic personality disorder, and that means that I know that they do not have antisocial personality disorder. Not true. Not true. Right. They can have more than one. And it may even be uh, more accurate to say 
this person has a, clearly has a personality disorder or personality pathology that is described by cluster B, but they their most prominent traits are these three from borderline, these three from narcissistic or some other melange of those. In some ways saying this person has this disorder and not this one is an artificial categorization. Sometimes it works well, sometimes it doesn't. Right. So um, let's talk about borderline, borderline personality, um, uh, because this is the one that I think is, is one of the most prominent in social justice. Borderline personality disorder is characterized by a person who has an unstable sense of self. Their identity is constantly in flux. They, they don't have a good sense of who they are, right? They construct an identity for themselves based on affinity groups that they that they ally themselves with, whether it's a particular social justice cause, veganism, or and no, no, everybody, I'm not saying that all vegans are personality disordered. And when I describe <laughs> these things, I am not saying that everybody who adheres to a particular point of view is personality disordered. Okay. Although, although can I jump in? Yes. Watched a Charles Manson documentary the other night, and I will say, like Hitler, vegetarian. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but he was vegetarian. But I'm not saying. No. <laughs> I know. I know what you mean. They hear that. But, the, but hear there, that. there is in fact a strong correlation. Um, um, and I, I frankly do not care if that makes somebody uncomfortable. You can be uncomfortable. Being uncomfortable is a necessary part of life. Sometimes there are some very uncomfortable truths about this. Um, and borderline personality disorder, unstable sense of, of self, highly changeable mood, very quickly going from giddy happiness to outright rage or desperate suicidal sadness, um, often very manipulative behavior, um, trying to present yourself to people around you, loved ones in the public as um, as a uh, an incredibly oppressed, put upon victim, right? Who who never does anything to provoke the bad things that happen to her. She is merely only a receptacle for other people's violence. And this is often used as protective camouflage uh, by people with borderline personality disorder to make themselves appear harmless and weak. Um, but what you will find often is that if you do not service their ego the way they want you to service their ego, if you don't agree with them, that if you say, hey, I understand you're upset by this, but you acted pretty badly in this situation. And, and it's kind of normal for people to push back against that. That that sad, wafy uh, little poor girl will start clawing your eyes out. She will turn into a raging bitch and she'll I've go for it. it with you. Yeah, I've seen that. <laughs> uh, borderline also, not in every borderline, but it's highly correlated with um, suicidal ideation uh, and suicidal actions. And some of these actions are are not, some, some of them are performances. So it's not just that they are more prone to suicide, they are. Borderline is that um, of all the mental disorders, both personality disorders and not personality disorders, borderline is the condition that has the highest recognized rate of successful suicide. So it is a quite dangerous uh, state of mind to have but there is an equal amount of gesturing and theatrics there, false suicide threats for purposes of manipulation and inducing guilt in other people. What's a good example of that in social justice? Transgender, right? Um, I would say to a close approximation, that 
personal identity, which we now call transgender, is actually borderline personality disorder that we have whitewashed and given a new brand name to, right? Yeah. Think about what think about what people are saying when they say they're transgender. I don't feel inside like I look on the outside. Um, I need you to recognize my gender, even if everything about me indicates that I'm a typical male. I need you to recognize me as a female. I need you to engage and pretend with me. And when you don't engage and pretend, or when you slip, when your eyes don't follow me the right way, or if you hesitate before you say the right pronoun, even those little things are invalidations mm -hmm. that's a, this is a very borderline thing to do i feel invalidated someone has invalidated me and attacked my the core sense of my being um and the uh the claims that if you don't call me a woman i'm going to kill myself is straight out of the dsm that's straight borderline personality disorder there's no there's no gray area there that's bpd yeah that's this is what they do do you draw a distinction between, because I do, I draw a distinction between people who um, identify as transgender before it became cannibalized by social justice and became mainstreamed and all the people who are claiming to be like the much higher percentages of people today who are claiming to be transgender. Because I look at some old trainees, like um, we interviewed Buck Angel on the show, for example, most of the the trans people I know and, and I guess by virtue of what we do on the podcast, I'm more likely to meet trans people who are wrong thinkers. Um, but most of them describe the process of of coming to terms with their, you know, their identity and who they wanted to be as something they wouldn't wish on anyone. And and often they pursued every avenue they could before arriving at, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna do this transition. Um I draw a big distinction between that and then the kid, the like these kids today who are being told in elementary school, you need to choose. Are you cis or trans? This is this something every kid has to choose? And then it's sort of a trendy thing today. It's a popular thing. Do you draw that same distinction? I draw some distinctions, maybe not the same ones that you do. Mm -hmm. um, let me let me do this in the Socratic way. Okay. Um, and when I ask these questions. I am not speaking about a particular person. Um, I'm not. I, I'm not making any accusations or any speculation about a particular person. However, I'm not going to temper what I say because you or someone else knows someone who's trans who's a good person. I'm. I'm not going to pretend that I don't think this is the case with them because they're your friend. Okay. Okay. Um, and and I don't. I don't think that being trans means bad person either. What does it mean? What does it look like to you when someone says someone who is clearly born in a female body, someone who is a woman, is a sexed female? Does it do you believe that it is stable and normative? I'll leave out normal. Let's just say normative in a developmental sense. Do you believe that there is such a person who is so conflicted and in such emotional turmoil about the way they feel inside versus their sex genitalia, that they go to the extreme of having surgery, poisoning their body with cross-sex hormones, because everyone who does this is poisoning themselves. None of this is healthy. It's not true that there are some people who are healthier this way. We all share the same human body, right? Cross-sex mm -hmm. hormones are poisonous. That's a biological fact. So someone who goes to these great lengths does it make sense for us to say, this is a perfectly normal, psychologically stable and healthy person 
They just happen to be trans. They just happen to need to go to this surgical extreme. Um, it's just like when gay people come out. Does that really make sense? My answer is I don't think it's normative, but I also I also think most of us aren't normative. And so I think for us. Oh, no. Wait, wait, wait. No, 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 let me, let me finish my thought because maybe I'm not articulating this clearly. It's less common, or it used to be less common, for people to choose surgery and hormone treatment and stuff for, for, um, because they thought they were transgender than it is for women to mutilate themselves and get plastic surgery and stuff um, just to fit the beauty norms for our own sex. And um, of those two, I don't know how to measure which is more or less normal. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I think that people, I think, I think people struggle with things um, that everybody has something different that they struggle with. And what, and that I think that like, I've imagined what if I felt like I, what if I, what if I felt I was a man and I just tried everything I could and I tried therapy and I tried, and what if I was one of those people who at the end of my rope said, okay, fine, I'm going to try living as a man. Sure. I've tried to put myself in that position. And so I, I can, maybe I'm not answering your question. I'm just trying to think out loud. What, what yeah, I think we're both thinking yeah. out loud. Yeah. But what I would say is um, there, there is a difference in, insofar as when this was not a fashionable identity, only those who were extremely committed to it right get to that stage right right um and what i'm about to say is not a moral judgment against them it's just an observation and and it may it may strike people as harsh but i honest to god think this is this is a compassionate way to look at it it's hard to hear but sometimes real compassion is hard to hear these personality disorders whether or not these people are personality disordered these come mainly from trauma okay child abuse early sexual abuse uh, could be caregiver abuse that's not parents, but these personality disorders, there's a genetic component and an and um an environmental component, but the correlation between childhood trauma and developing these disorders cannot be ignored. It is real and it is there. These people are suffering. Okay, I'm not saying the suffering isn't real. Right. I'm saying I'm saying that the solution to it. Um, I you just said, Carrie, for example, what if I tried everything? I tried every therapy and nothing worked. Right. I I don't believe that that's true. I believe that people experience it that way and they believe that that is true. But right. I don't believe it's actually true. I think our mental health system is a shambles. I think there is something fundamentally wrong with the mental health system that even posits that a tr that that cooperating in a delusion about your sex body is itself treatment. I find that scandalous. I find it scandalous. Yeah. Um, that does not mean I want them to be turned out on the street. But no, I do not believe that they were offered all the competent kind of psychodynamic therapy and trauma focused therapy that understands how this deformation of our characteristics and the way we see ourselves can turn pathological. I think pe these people have been failed. And I believe them when they say that their experience, their subjective experiences, that they tried everything. I'm not going to gainsay them on that but they haven't been offered or didn't have the opportunity um, to get real trauma-focused therapy. I mean, the very fact that we have a huge number of mental health clinicians who actually believe that cooperating in the delusion, saying, yes, you are in fact a man, 
that that itself is treatment. That's, that's insane. That is insane. And I, you're making me think of, um, I do, I do agree with you that in most cases, especially today, when the way that the medical treatment is failing kids and, and parents and families today is astounding. And th they better get ready for lots of lawsuits from some of these kids when they grow up. I know they've already started. The, the lawsuits have already started um, from, from, from teens and young adults who are detransitioning. Um, but you're making me think of this documentary I watched. It's really hard to find. They tried to scrub it from the internet entirely. It was produced by the BBC originally. It's, it's called, um, I think it's called Trans Kids Who Knows Best. Yes, yes, I've seen it. Yeah, and in that doc, they, you know, I can't remember, it's been a while since I've seen it, but they talked about, you know, used to be the most well-respected, well-renowned gender transition clinics in the world that the doctors there would go through trauma therapy. They would try to figure out what's really at the root of this because most of the time it was something other than an individual who just could not live in their actual physical body. Most of right. the time it was something else. That's right. And they That's said right. it was like something like 90% of kids or something ended up saying, okay, I'm fine with my actual biological sex. If they well, went through that therapy. Yeah. And, and there are some people out. So yes, the people you're like, like a buck angel, for example, Mm -hmm. um, clearly far, far more cognizant of, of the reality of their problems. You know, Buck Angel is not trying to say, this is a great solution for everybody, or this was the greatest possible solution for me. Uh, you know, it was the solution that, that was the best option for me. But Buck Angel is aware. I hate this. I'm avoiding pronouns right now because I'm caught in that trap of feeling that I'm going to be rude. I have a principle that I don't I don't do fake pronouns. I don't pretend that sex isn't real, but I also don't want to come across as rude. And, and that's a bind that a lot of people find themselves in. Um, so, yeah, I do think there's a difference between a self-aware person like Buck Angel, who understands that this is a, a trauma process that he or she is doing their very best to accommodate the best way they know how. There's a difference between that. And, and the kids and the young people, or even the adults now, who cotton on to this craze. What I don't think is I don't think there's a difference of, of kind. I think that the same trauma and personality characteristics that, that, that cause so much suffering for a person like Buck Angel are in fact the same ones that are causing um, these young people to cotton on to this, right? It, even if they are much less self-aware, psychologically healthy people who were reared in a psychologically healthy environment and had normal emotional development are not inclined to jump on these bandwagons. The very inclination to do this is, is a sign of a disordered mind, yes. right? This is not a moral judgment. I'm not saying they're bad yeah. people. I am saying they are psychologically very unhealthy. And yes, they are in the same family, I think, most of the time. Well, um, yeah, and it's a lot of um, the the other thing I've I've read about, and it and this was touched on in the documentary is it's mostly women who are now saying, "Oh, I'm trans." Later in girls. later, yeah, in adolescence, whereas it used to be before it became trendy and mainstreamed and part of social justice ideology. Most of the kids at the the most famous treatment centers saw were young boys, and they were very young, you know, toddlers and you know, now it's a lot of what they're calling the late onset gender dysphoria, where it's you're seeing these teenage girls um, 
and, and high numbers of teenage girls. They also seem to be, at least anecdotally, they seem to be the, the people who are detransitioning. If you go on YouTube and just look up detransition videos, you'll come across scores and scores of first-person testimonials, mostly from biological women who transitioned when they were teenagers and are now trying to detransition. Yes. Well, um, there, there, I think there are two main things that are going on here with young women. Number one, for whatever reasons, adolescent girls, at least as far back as we know in Western societies, as a, as a cohort, young adolescent girls have always been very vulnerable to social contagions and, and what used to be called hysterical illnesses, right? The Salem witch trials is a perfect example. What those girls were doing in the courtroom in Salem, that was their version of anorexia. That was their version of bulimia. That was their version of transing, right? Yeah. Um, that's what I think. Um, so you have that. And number two, here's the dirty secret. There's a lot of dirty secrets people don't want to talk about, but this one to me is the most important and we need to talk about it right now and very loudly. The overwhelming majority of children, girls and boys, who are diagnosed as gender dysphoric are diagnosed with what they call a comorbid mental health diagnosis. Um, I don't actually think it's a question of comorbidity. I think that the expression is itself the morbidity, right? Hmm. Um, but they're psychologically disturbed. And why are they disturbed? Because they've been abused. We all know that there are parents out there who are desperate, right? Um, who are who are caught in a Kafka trap, right? We know you talk about this on Unsafe Space. Other shows have talked about it. We know about the parents where um, one child is being pushed into transgenderism or has been convinced of that by a disordered or abusive parent. And then the other parent is silenced by the court and not allowed to call uh, his daughter a she. We know that this is going on. We know there are good parents who are doing everything they can to stop this. I'm not saying they don't exist. But I'm getting a little tired, frankly, of, of these parents being talked about as if they represented the majority of families of kids with gender dysphoria. They do not. The majority of these families are abusive. This shows up in the literature over and over and over again. And in fact, particularly when I see mothers with so-called, with boys who then say they're girls, they're transgender girls, Jazz Jennings being an example. This isn't new. You already know what this is. It's called Munchausen syndrome by proxy. It is exactly the same thing as the mothers who poisoned their children and made them vomit so that they could hospitalize them and get attention for it. It's not like Munchausen. It's not eerily similar. It is Munchausen. This is Munchausen syndrome by proxy, and it is being applauded and socially validated. I would like us to spend some more time and more attention looking at what is going on behind closed doors in these homes. These children, with where do they think their mental health diagnoses come from? Their, yeah. their home is just picture perfect. It's leave its beaver. No, it isn't. No, it's not. Yeah. I'm trying to think just anecdotally of some of the examples uh, recently that I know. And uh, there's a woman I know who, or used to know, 
who I, you know, speaking of cluster B, I would say is dead on in the histrionic category yep. and possibly, and also narcissistic. And which you've said before, all four of these. All four are narcissistic. All four are narcissistic. But uh, in her case, I don't think there was, I don't think there was abuse per se with her kids, but I think what there was a lot abuse? of, but, well, no, I think there was a lot of neglect though. Mm -hmm. A lot of neglect. And I, I mean, I know there was a lot of neglect and it's basically, it's looking at that family's dynamic. She's the star of a movie that everyone else is in <laughs> and her kids are supporting characters at best if they're even there. And anyway, they're NPCs her, to them. Right. And so one of her teenage daughters has recently decided, um, that she is a, a boy and, uh, and has not only started transitioning um, as a minor, but is also now, I think, taking a page from mom and filling up Instagram with these really um, just sexually provocative, dressed like a dog in a slave position, a, a doggy boy and all this stuff at, at a sex club. And it's like, what is happening? <laughs> like, But I can see that as sort of, this is just an anecdote of one example, but I can see that almost as like, look at this kid, look, begging for attention. Yes. Why? Because yes. well, and I no can. Yeah, you're uh, Carrie. I think you're absolutely yeah. right. Um, and this may help. This may help people to better intuit this. Um, anyone who's watching or listening, if you believe that what we call gender dysphoria in children, if you believe that 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 psychological condition is a new condition, um, you are wrong. I, it's not your fault that you're wrong because it's been presented as something new but it is not new. This is what happened to me when I was a child. This is the common, not the rare, the common experience of young children in abusive homes who happen, who will grow up to be homosexual. Common, okay? Um, I, and if people are interested in more detail in this, they can, they can watch my show. Um, the last episode I did called Over the Borderline is out this week. Um, it's the first of a two-part episode, and it it lays this out in detail. Um, when I was a little boy, my mother is a borderline and a narcissist. Um, if you want to know, the one-sentence description that I can give you, that you uh, to understand what kind of a person my mother is, She's a trailer park version of Joan Crawford crossed with Carrie White's mother in the movie Carrie, the religious fanatic. That is the kind of person my mother is. That is the household that I grew up in. When I was a little boy, I was shy, frightened, girly, effeminate. I had all girls as friends. I didn't get along with boys. Um, I liked to dress up as a girl. Um, I liked, I adopted personas of female characters in my favorite storybooks and television shows. This is very, this is bog standard common shit for gay kids, right? Not new, has been going on forever. But if I were 25 years younger than I am, I would be on the trans treadmill right now. Those kids you're seeing out there were me. Not new, not different. We have just now validated and normalized um, mistreatment of, of children who are gender nonconforming. Don't mistake me. I see nothing pathological at all 
about the most effeminate boy you could find. There's nothing pathological about liking dresses or sparkly things. There is zero pathological about little girls who would rather play with Tonka trucks and be a railroad engineer instead of being a mommy. Nothing at all is wrong with that. I do not criticize that. It is our reaction to it that has pathologized it. Instead of just saying we have a tomboy or we have uh, we have an artsy little fag boy or whatever, right? Notice that we don't have a cutesy nickname for those sissy boys that that makes it okay. It's okay somewhat, you know, we have tomboys, but we don't have an affectionate nickname for boys who act like girls because we really don't like those boys. Yeah. We really don't. Um, but I grew out of it, right? As most of us do. But now these children, most of whom will turn out to be homosexual, about between 10 and 20% of them, depending on the study you look at, uh, will turn out to be heterosexual, but are still gender non-conforming in the same way. But the vast majority in study after study turn out to be gay. This is child abuse, and it is now Mengele-level surgical mutilation and chemical castration of gay children. That's what is going on. Do you follow uh, on Twitter Chad Felix Green? Yes, I do. Up? Yeah, I was just looking for a tweet of his. I can't find it. But basically, he was saying recently something similar to what you're saying. And he's gay. And he was saying, you know, what we've done is we've taken a whole generation of kids who would have otherwise turned out to be gay. And we're putting them through transition um, therapy, basically. It's it's tantamount to conversion therapy. It's worse. It's worse where you're physically mutilating sometimes irreversibly mutilating children before they're old enough to consent. And the great evil in this is it's being, it's being hidden. It's being like, they do all this stuff in plain sight and they mask it with empathy and virtue. And you don't care about these kids if you don't support. That is cluster B manipulation. This entire project is cluster B. And here's the thing to understand about this. Most people are not personality disordered, whether it's cluster A, cluster B, or cluster C. Most people are not. So it is not the case that everybody who is participating in SJW culture or everyone who's participating in the transing of children, I am not saying that most of them are personality disordered. I am saying that the ringleaders, the organizers, and the influencers are absolutely cluster B, and some of them are straight up psychopaths. Yeah. They're not even just unstable borderlines. They are fucking psychopaths and they're getting applauded in plain sight, particularly the surgeons. Well, well, let's look at some of those traits you mentioned before. Unstable sense of self yeah. and borderline constructing an identity based on affinity groups. They yeah. they do this all the time. Like you said, it's 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 almost as if. Um, and, and this, this was definitely true for me when I was in social justice is that my beliefs, my ideology came to be my identity. Yes. And that way, and that, and and so if someone attacked my ideology or my beliefs, I felt personally attacked. Yes. They feel personally attacked. If you criticize social justice, they feel like it's a personal attack. It's not, but that's why they'll, I think they'll often come back at you personally because they're like, Oh, you're attacking me personally. It's like, no, your belief system. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but um, highly but changeable moods. The changeable moods, um, uh, mis- you know, uh, 
making an making enemies out of people who are not actually your enemies and cozying up to people who you should see as your enemies who are really dangerous to you. It's a very cluster B borderline thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, but it is true, although not everybody in these groups is personality disordered. A, th the number of cluster Bs in the thick of these groups is vastly disproportionate when looked at against the background population because this draws them in. This is a cluster B magnet. So yes, there's a very high rate of active borderlines in these groups. Yeah. It's not just the estimate of a few percent of the population. I'd say it might even be in some of these groups, up to 50% of them, I, I, I would look at and say, looks like borderline to me. Yeah. But other people are vulnerable to it. People like me, people like you, Carrie, who came from abusive households, are very vulnerable to this. Um, we're looking for a sense of identity and community. We have experienced a childhood where we were actually oppressed. And a lot of times we couldn't articulate the real problem because we'd have to implicate our mother or our father in this. And that's too much for a child to bear. Um, so we are attracted to groups that say, come here, I love you. I accept you for who you are, and we're going to fight those bad people. Come here and give me a big hug. I'm your new family now. Kids like us are very vulnerable to this. Yes. And there are gray areas, too. Um, I'm not entirely outside what I'm describing. I have traits of borderline and histrionic. I have to work very hard to manage them. Um, but at one point in my life, particularly in my 20s, it might have been a fair cop to diagnose me as having active borderline personality disorder. Mm -hmm. It's 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 very difficult. These things shade in like, you know, you can you talk about the effects of child abuse resulting in what's called CPTSD or complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Some people say that's just another word for borderline personality disorder. Other people disagree and say, no, they share a lot of similarities and they both come from trauma, but they are distinct. One is a personality disorder. One is a mood and stress disorder. The truth may be somewhere in between. Maybe it was CPTSD, um, but I, I do have some empathic connection to this because I behaved this way a great deal when I was younger. And it's not a surprise given where I came from, but it looks very different once you reckon with it and you, and you realize what the sickness is in your family or your, the home that you were brought up in. And you realize that all these things that you think make you who you are, your passion for going up against the bad guy and saving the little guy mm -hmm. can really distort your perspective and you can create a false self that is actually destructive to you and destructive to other people. Yeah, it really does a great job of, of selling itself dishonestly as yeah. an ideology that's about protecting the little guy when it's not, it couldn't be further from the truth, but that does appeal to people. I think who want that sense of justice who felt robbed from justice as children. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell me a little bit about what was your process for getting out of were you were you involved in some elements of social justice culture and ideology and and so what what was your process for getting out of that and also for recognizing that your mom was cluster b how did these two things coincide when and when did you have that realization that like oh my goodness a lot of what i'm seeing here in social justice is cluster b stuff 2016 um and they are part and parcel of the same thing one could not have happened for me without the other so how did I get into it? I started young. When I was 16 years old, I became a local poster boy in the media for a, um, I got fired from my job as a, at a grocery store chain 
because I complained to management about homophobic abuse, um, bullying, shoving, physical altercations, um, having my, my locker in the break room stuffed full of gay pornography, having my phone number written in the bathrooms. Um, I, I was, I was very badly treated, but I got fired for complaining about it. Wow. So I became the local poster boy on the news uh, for this case against my grocery store chain. And, and at the same time, our city was considering the first um, civil rights ordinance at the city level saying you can't fire somebody for being homosexual. Uh, and it, this was a fight that needed fighting. Um, what happened to me was wrong. What happened to other people was wrong. But I was way too young um, to be as to be as exposed um, and 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 to be involved in a lawsuit. Um, I don't even think all of it was conscious, but I, I ended up getting exploited and used by older adults for uh, for a political project that was much bigger than what was going on in my life. So I started early. Um, I I'd always been a hardcore Democrat, strong leftist. Um, and I got involved in new atheism, um, the sort of community that that sprang up around Richard Dawkins's book, The God Delusion, that came out, I think, around 2006. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was heavily involved in that, heavily involved in atheist activism, church and state separation activism. And again, some of these things were pointing to and trying to correct real and legitimate problems. But the community and the identity went so far beyond the real that it became a cult and I stayed in it. Um, and I didn't even realize it was a cult until I was in too deep. And when it took a turn toward what was called atheism plus, which I think happened around 2011, 2012, the conscious melding of, of church and state separatism activism with social justice saying, it's not enough to be an atheist. You also have to be an environmentalist. You have to be a feminist. You have to be for, um, higher minimum wage. You have to do all the lefty things. We have yeah. to do all these things or it's not good enough. And I sucked it up and I regurgitated it back out there. Yeah. I was very angry, very indiscriminately angry. And it gives I, you all these great targets to be angry at. Yes. And, and, and great and great distractions from facing the true problems about myself and the parts of myself that were broken. Yeah, it distracts you from it entirely. Yep. So what happened was, and I used to be one of those trans women or women people. I was out there stumping and holding those signs and and monitoring people online for misgendering people. I mean, I have I'm I have a lot of regret and a lot of shame for things that I did. Um, but a lot of people have done them. I've done and, them. By the way, when you said that just now, what I heard was trans women or women people like. Um, Cheese food is food for cheese. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Calling all women and women people. Line up and hold out. We're rationing out the cheese food tonight. <laughs> but what, what happened, two things happened in, in a short period of time that woke me up. Number one was a good friend of mine, a writer, a very good writer, um, was drummed out of the blog collective that she worked for um, and was the target of a smear campaign because she would not say trans women are women. And she started asking the sorts of reasonable questions that all of us are now asking. She was targeted, um, a vicious smear campaign. Um, she lost her paid writing gig. She was booted out of conferences. She was harassed online. This to the point where she could not sleep well at night, you know? And it woke me up. 
And I said, holy shit, what have I been doing? What have I been doing? Like the Salem witch trials, like you said earlier. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I was horrified. I was absolutely horrified. And this had to happen. I'm glad this happened, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started to push back. And of course, you know what happens when you push back. And I got excommunicated as well, although I wasn't as prominent a person. Um, so the consequences were not as severe for me. Although I did lose hundreds of friends. I mean, they're not really friends, are they? All these people Facebook we have. Friends. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, this was around 2016. At the same time, I made a very, I made a terrible mistake. Um, I went into debt and I bought a second house for my mother so that I could rent one of the two apartments in that house to my mother at a rate she could afford. My mother's been poor her entire life. And I've been rescuing her from homelessness by paying off back rent for years, paying off utility bills so that her electricity would come back on. I've been rescuing my mother and parenting my mother most of my adult life. Now I was doing it even in childhood. In childhood. Um, So I said, I'm the oldest. I'm going to have to take care of her. She's getting old. I guess I better do this in a financially sound way. So I'm going to buy this duplex, this ranch house that's duplexed. Mom can live uh, at a cheap rent and I'll make the bills work by renting out the other apartment at market rate. I went into debt. I bought a house in foreclosure. I put tens of thousand dollars uh, in renovating it. I moved her in. And everything went to hell. Mm. I had forgotten what it was like to be around my mother constantly. And somehow over the decades that I have lived away from her, I had erased the reality in my mind and I'd painted a rosy picture. And it all came back. And my mother's behavior over a period of two years drove me to a nervous breakdown. I was I was trying to decide whether to kill myself or check myself into the inpatient psychiatric ward. Um, I couldn't function. I couldn't leave the bathroom for the vomiting and the diarrhea constantly all day, every day. Um, the abuse was was constant. The emotional torment was constant. She would she would she would go through the mailboxes of my tenants to see how many welfare and food stamp checks they were getting so that she could consider whether or not she should turn them in for welfare fraud. And I thought to myself, bitch, what is wrong with you? Are you competing? Yeah. Are you, are you jealous that they get more welfare than you do? Um, She would lie about the tenants. She drove tenants away. So she literally, she not only jeopardized my financial stability, but she jeopardized the very financial stability that had given her for the first time in her life, a rent controlled situation. I solved every single financial problem my mother had. I did. I made them all go away. I charged her rent that her social security check would allow her to pay. I fixed her problems. And as soon as she moved in, she set about it, chipping away the foundation until it all crumbled. See, I think I'm going to interrupt you for a second, because I think people who haven't maybe didn't grow up with um, someone in their life close, close to them who had borderline wouldn't understand this, but it's almost like, um, there were like these just chaos, um, these instruments of chaos. And a lot of times it borderline people, um, will manifest in their life, the very things that, that 
that are holding them back or causing them struggle or strife and the very things that they say they don't want. So for example, if you think they do that all the time, if you think of the kind of like overly possessive girlfriend who is so obsessed with making sure her boyfriend doesn't cheat on her and is overly out, like just like a borderline kind of paranoid where uh, accusing him of stuff he hasn't done. I saw you look at that girl. I saw you do that, whatever. Yeah. And then you eventually in some cases, those people drive that person to actually do the thing they've been accusing them of for years <laughs> because it's like you manifest yeah. this thing. I'm glad that- you said that, Carrie, because that's the important thing to remember. One of the core characteristics of the borderline pathology is a fear of abandonment, and it comes from child abuse and neglect. My mother was severely abused and neglected as a child. It is not a mystery to me why she turned out the way she did. Their core fear is being abandoned but they will engineer, they will make sure that that abandonment happens yes, over, they, and over, over and over and over and over again. <laughs> right? Yes. They drive people away. They create the very terror that they're trying to run away from, right? Yeah. This is very common. That is the paranoid girlfriend who insists that you're, that you're sleeping on, sleeping around on her when you're not until you finally do leave her. And then she won't leave you alone and say, see, you're just the same kind of fucking bastard I said you were. You left me all alone. You know, every man who's ever done this to me, you're just like all of them, all right? Of them. Right. Um, so yeah, my mother did that. Um, and is the thing about personality disorders and why this is so dangerous is that, again, this is about their character. This is not a passing depression. It's not a passing anxiety of an otherwise stable person. This is the core of who they are. Can they be treated? Depends on how you look at it. Sociopaths, no. You will not unmake a psychopath. There is no treatment on earth that can give a conscience to a person who does not have a conscience. Forget it, don't even try. Narcissists, don't waste your time. Do not waste your time. Um, Histrionics and borderlines, there's more hope for, but there is much less hope than there is for your friend who goes through depressive periods and you think, hey, maybe if she finds the right medication or the right talk therapy, you know, I could see that she might be able to put these depressive episodes down. We've seen this happen with people, right? You are not going to get that with your borderline. Don't fool yourself. If they're going to be treated and recover, it's gonna be very few of them. And mental health pros, If any of you are watching right now, I already can see the look on your face. I already know what you want to say back to me. But the reality is most mental health professionals are not very well schooled in the cluster B disorders. They don't truly understand them. Not enough time is spent on them in most of the schools. Um, A lot of them from what I've read, they they either, if they are schooled in them, they don't want to treat them. They don't want to. Right, because they're extraordinarily difficult. And, and part of the, yeah. the problem is with the cluster B disorders, one of the characteristics is they do not believe anything is wrong with them. Not only do they not believe that nothing is wrong with them, they are floridly angry if you should suggest that they have a flaw or a shortcoming that mm-hmm. provokes rage in them. Because underneath this, even the grandiose narcissist, the one who the handsome or the beautiful woman who's flamboyant uh, and self-centered. Maybe she's a great actress and a great entertainer, but you can see that she's a tornado in her life, right? 
She may look like the most self-confident woman on the face of the earth, but she doesn't have one one hundredth of the self-confidence that you, a normal, stable person, have. This is an act to cover up the fact that they feel empty inside and they don't have a fully formed personality. And it's very hard to break through that. So if a borderline is going to get help, the best outcome happens when they're fairly young. These, these things don't just come on at 18 years old. They, they start in childhood and they start in adolescence. But the older you get into adulthood, the more they bake and set, right? The harder it is to change them. So if they can get into specific trauma-directed therapy that is well aware of cluster B and, and aware of borderline personality organization, they have a good chance of making a recovery or a significant reduction in symptoms that makes their life and the life of people around them much more manageable. But this requires a combination of circumstances that is unlikely to happen. It requires A, the borderline who gathers up enough ego strength to say something's wrong with me. I hate the fact that something's wrong with me, but it is me and I do need to change. That's very hard to do. Number two, they need to be young enough that this is not calcified into a lifelong pattern. And number three, they have to find, and th these, these therapists are the minority. You have to hunt for them. They have to find a therapist who understands this and is specifically treating them for borderline pathology. That can happen, and I have seen it happen, but it's probably not going to be your borderline. No. Okay? And, and here's something interesting. So... As you mentioned, a lot of the people with cluster B, one of the most marked traits is narcissism across all four. And like you said, they're the, they, they do not appreciate the insinuation that they might benefit from therapy usually, or that there might be something wrong with them. It's always someone else's fault. It's like the, it's like the, the borderline who's been fired from 10 different jobs and it's, but it's always the boss's fault. It's not, it's never anything I did or, right. or the girlfriend who's had a, a string of relationships. And when she tells you about all the guys, it's like, they were all awful and they all cheated on her and they were and and, and it, but it's never her. It's never, they're always the victim. Like you said, they're always the victim. They don't see anything as being wrong with them. And so typically what I read about borderline when I started reading about it a few years ago was that they don't end up in therapy a lot of times, or if they do, they go for something else. They go for depression or anxiety. But if you suggest they have a personality disorder, they do not take kindly. To yes. That. More borderlines end up in therapy than narcissists because um, uh, in general, in terms of the capacity to experience a full range of emotions, the borderlines have the fullest range of emotions generally of the cluster B disorders. Um, they're not, they're not psychopaths. Some of them are, some of them are, I haven't, I have a family member who is yes, officially by a mental health institution diagnosed as a borderline and a psychopath. Okay. Dangerous, dangerous combination, but most borderlines are not full fledged psychopaths. They, they have some empathy, but it's a compromised empathy. And it's an empathy that is often non-functional or that they cannot access when they need it the most. But yes. it's not that it's entirely missing. So they, they, they can experience joy. They can experience sadness. Sometimes they can experience regret and shame. But they experience it in toxic ways that tend not to bring enlightenment to them. They need help to do that. Go yeah. over here to a psychopath. 
A psychopath has a very limited range of emotions. They generally experience either the, the excitement of an appetite, a lustful appetite or, or a gluttonous appetite or, or a thrill ride. I mean, there's a reason why, you know, psychopaths are thrill seekers because they have a very high stimulation level. They need a lot of stimulation to feel mm -hmm. something. So they're like, I feel great or I feel dead inside. They don't have a lot of uh, in between there. Um, so when borderlines end up in therapy far more and narcissists, as you said, Carrie, are very resistant to um, to the idea that something is wrong with them. They 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 generally don't even like to admit depression uh, and get treatment for that, because that would mean that something was not perfect about them. Right. Borderlines do end up in therapy, but they almost never get there because they're aware that they have borderline personality disorder. They get there because they're suffering from panic disorder. They're suffering from major depression. Yeah. Um you know, and these are things that are common to, you know, lots of us have these things, whether we're personality disordered or not. My mother has been in therapy most of her adult life. The longest stretch she had with one therapist was 14 years. That ought to tell you something. What kind of therapy goes on for 14 years? I wasn't there for it. I don't know her therapist, but I don't need to know anymore. Yeah. Then to tell you that it, it was worthless. Right. Yeah. And I suspect that my mother found one of these biddable, um, two sympathetic female therapists who believed her self-pitying presentation that the entire world had shit on her um, and let my mother cry on her shoulder for 14 years straight. Nothing, nothing changed. Yeah. So here's here's what I find interesting now with um, social justice becoming mainstream is that. In the past, a lot of borderlines didn't end up in therapy, therapy, or if they did, they came in for depression or anxiety or something else. But now I'm seeing a little bit, a slightly different trend. And this is just anecdotally among social justice people I know. A lot of them are now claiming forthright to be borderline, which is something I, I, you didn't see in the past. And they're claiming it almost, but, but here's, it, you would think on its face, oh, that's great somebody's accepting this diagnosis, they're gonna get help for it, but that's not what's happening. They're claiming it as an identity and a fixed identity. And then they're they're almost suggesting that the rest of the world mold to them to fit their special disorder. They're not almost suggesting it, they are demanding it and they're doing it explicitly. Yes, yes. It's, it's funny because I, I say of borderline, it's the one self-diagnosis that I almost always believe. <laughs> because the only person who would claim that is a borderline. The only kind of person who would believe that this is a good identity to hold out to the world is someone who is who has cluster B personality disorganization. Normal people would not claim this, right? Yeah. So frankly, I think they're right. Yeah. I think they're right. That they have it, yes. That they have it, yes. But the um, weird thing is they don't um, I'm thinking here in particular of, of one former friend who is I mean, she just went headlong into social justice the same time I was coming out of it. And she's um, all of her posts on, on social media, the way she interacts with the broader world. It's it's just a combination of social justice rage you know, white silence is violence and, you know, um, defund the police and all this stuff. And, and then juxtaposed with, with posts about borderline personality disorder and these very poor me, woe is me, 
this is so hard to be me. You people who don't have borderline don't understand. Let me try and explain it for you again, how put upon I am. And if only the world would increase their awareness of my very special disorder. And it's like, no, that is not the way you get healthy. They, you're right. They, they want to be seen the same way that we see people with autism. They want to present to the world that they have an unchangeable condition for which the only appropriate public response is sympathetic support, right? Yeah. yeah. But there, there is so much tragedy to this because I make no bones about this. I say this in my show. These are dangerous people. My advice to you, and I realize this is not going to apply if you have a child, you have an interest in helping your child get past things like this. I realize that I'm not talking to parents. I'm not telling parents to cut their, I mean, I, I don't know. The borderline and sociopath in my family, this, this woman's parents have cut her off and they've done it for their own safety. And I think they're right to do it. And, and frankly, I thank God that they did because I was very worried that 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 parental bond would so compromise their sense of their own safety that they would allow her to hurt them, right? So I do worry about that. But for most of you, the solution to this problem is to cut this person off and put up boundaries. If I thought that I could suggest something to you that would make a meaningful difference in their recovery, I would do so, but I can't suggest that to you. You cannot do this. You will never do this. You are not going to be the one who loves your borderline boyfriend back to health. You're not. And the longer you stay with them, the sicker you will get and the more danger you'll be in. Some of them are absolutely physically dangerous. Yes, they might hit you. They might burn you. They might pull a knife on you. They might burn your house down. But of course, many of them are not physically dangerous. But what might they do? They will extort you emotionally. They will gaslight you into believing that you've committed horrible moral sins against them that you can't figure out, but that you still feel bad about. They will have you doing everything for them. They will drain your bank account. They may actually steal your money. They will steal your stuff to support um, their very common uh, comorbid drug addictions. These people are dangerous, but they are also tragic because all of this Poor me behavior, this woe is me, everyone's doing this to me, my boyfriend left me, my boss is a bastard. Even though those things aren't really true the way they experience them, they are still experiencing real trauma and pain that was inflicted on them by their parents. Okay? They're not making that up. They displace it. They, they construct a false facade for it, but they are still experiencing real, genuine pain. They didn't choose to be the way they are. But I can tell you that when I, I, I put my mother out of my life, I actually had to go to court and evict her. She would not leave voluntarily. I, had, I basically had to sue my mother. And it was a very difficult time. My law firm had, despite the fact that I gave them things to read and I said, you're dealing with cluster B here. Um, if you know the term, Mr. Lawyer, vexatious litigant, that is the character of my mother, right? I tried to get them to understand this, 
and they they kept suggesting, why don't you give her a little more time? You don't really want another court date. Just give her another month to leave. I had already given her twice the legal statutory limit because I'm not a cruel person. And finally, one day he got it. He was frustrated and he was actually a little angry with me. Um, that's okay. Um, he needed to be in order to see what was going on. He said, this is more like a divorce. And I said, Michael, that is exactly what this is. This is a divorce. I am divorcing my mother. Yes, my mother is that person you know as the high conflict spouse who wants the custody of the children and wants everyone else's money. Yeah. Congratulations, you finally figured it out, right? Yeah. But when you do, when you do put this person out of your life, whether it's your parent or your spouse, and if you begin to reckon honestly with what really happened and you tell the truth to yourself and you tell the truth to other people, good things can happen. I will always have, I will always be prone to depression. I will always be prone to anxiety. I will probably always be more irritable and have a shorter temper than a normal range person would. I don't believe that I am personality disordered now. I think it's a, a strong possibility that I was at one point, but I wasn't as severe as my mother. Um, but I knew that something good had changed when I put my mother out of my life and I started to go to therapy for the right reasons and really get into it because people at work who had known me for a long time, one woman took me aside and said, something's changed in you. You don't walk around like you're angry at the world anymore. You're like a different person, right? And that's going to sound funny to anybody watching this who knows me because they, I am still snappish and short-tempered. It's a character flaw, but I'm not like I used to be. And I'm not angry at the world anymore. I'm angry at particular things, but it's not indiscriminate rage. And that it could only happen for me when I recognized the true nature and the name of the sickness that runs in my family and what it meant. Joshua, we have just started knowing each other, but I get that sense from you too, that you do not hate the world. And I know that, I know I, when I was in social justice, I did hate the world. I know exactly Didn't you though? Yeah. And they yeah. do. And they don't, I don't think a lot of them see it rolling off of them. Like this just extreme dissatisfaction with what Jordan Peterson calls dissatisfaction with being itself. Yes. You know? It's this hatred of existence, um, and and you don't because it can feel unbearable, right? Yeah, yeah. I think so much of it is rooted in resentment. It encourages resentment instead of gratitude, and all those things. You know, it's like, um, uh, I don't know. I've really enjoyed this conversation with you because so often we talk about social justice on our show, but we don't often get into the psychology behind it. We get into more of like what what are the tenets of the belief system? What's wrong with the ideas? We talk about the ideas in the, in the ideology and, and what, what's bad about those ideas, but we don't often talk about the psychology of the person who believes these things and pushes these things. And I'm giving more That's why I do my show. Um, I think we need to. I. This is not... It's not possible to understand how social justice functions and why it has attained its prominence. It is not possible. You cannot analyze it if you do not understand the psychology. This is not an optional thing, right? 
This is a fundamental thing. You can talk about it, but you're never going to find the answers and you're never going to find the ways to effectively combat how it creeps into your life, into your children's life, into your public school system's curriculum, into your church's sermons. You will not figure out how to stop this until you understand the people who are in front of you. These are the people you are dealing with. If you don't seek to understand their psychology, you're simply throwing darts at a dartboard and hoping that it hits the right target. Right. It's not rational. You will never figure out the rational reasons for these things because they don't come from a rational place. They come from a place of pain and rage, misdirected pain and rage. And that's such an accurate way of describing not just, you know, how it's almost impossible to understand social justice, the motivations behind someone who pushes social justice. It's almost it's just as accurate to say that about someone in your life who, you know, exhibits one of these cluster B personality disorders. I had a I had a friend actually it was Carter. Carter told me a couple years ago at this uh, uh, relationship I shouldn't have been in for a while and uh, was taking my sweet time leaving it. And I couldn't understand this person. And, And at one point he was like it's not your job to understand. It's not your job in life to figure out a person who's not rational. Like it's, why do you, why do you think mm-hmm. that you can be fascinated by personality disorders from afar? <laughs> like, <you know>? <laughs> <laughs> right. Like you don't have to get up close and personal. and like, but I don't understand how a person could do this. It's like, yeah, you're not probably not ever going to, <laughs> and you just have to accept that. <laughs> like, well, yes and no. Uh, Carter's right. You know, it is, it's, it's not your, it's not your obligation. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of us, I, you know, I get, like you said, we're just getting to know each other, but I suspect that, you know, what I'm talking about. Um, I'm betting that you, you experienced that. You weren't allowed to end the relationship until you'd done all the good faith work to make yes. sure that you really understood there really must have been a reason for it. And you can only stop being abused once you've done all the work. Otherwise, it's an invalid thing. You just have to sit there and suck it up, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I know that very well. <laughs> I, I've had more than one psychopath in my bed, and I mean that literally. So um, I do understand. <laughs> I do understand it. Carter's right. But I would also say to a degree, you can understand them and and understanding cluster B is the key. If anybody who is listening to us talk to each other does still want to understand and and I'm, I'm still trying to understand it. I'm still trying to understand my mother and I'm trying to understand myself. If once you do some reading, talk to other people, start to notice patterns. It's not that 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 you will suddenly discover rational reasons that all people would share and say, of course her behavior was justified because any person would do that. You're not going to find that answer. But you will find the reasons why people do these things. Yeah. You will find something that happened in their childhood. You will find that the much of what forms the borderline personality our parents who who think okay the all these people who say 
I'm valid. Tell me I'm valid. This is a, this is a child, right? Mm -hmm. In my most sympathetic, these are children whose parents never validated them. These are children whose parents not only didn't validate them, but mocked them and smacked them and laughed at them. And when they tried to explain their feelings to their parents, they either got cold indifference or they got derisive laughter. Yeah. Children cannot let that roll off their back the way adults are. That's what childhood is. This kind of stuff from a parent and especially a mother hardwires you in a toxic way. So even though they're saying, validate me for my facial piercings and validate me for my temper tantrums, no, they shouldn't be validated for that, but they're telling you something real. They did not get the validation that human beings need as children. So although it's displaced and it's inappropriate, there is some truth to it. That's a really great point. It is, it is. I think a lot of times they're showing you, they're telling you a lot about themselves and about their, I think sometimes, I think of it sometimes like, getting arrested at a certain point in your life emotionally. Um, yes. because, yeah. Cause I can interact with some people who age is such a tricky thing, you know, chronologically I might be talking to a friend who's in their forties, but emotionally they seem more like 18 to me. That was me. Yeah. And then vice versa. I can talk sometimes to 20 year olds who have had a very healthy childhood and they emotionally to me, seem much older than they are <laughs> because they're much more stable and they're not. Yeah. You notice something real. It's not that it's not that they, they, that, that your friends were acting as if you identified the real thing. Arrested emotional development is, is, is a specific diagnostic criteria, um, uh, statement that you can make. This is arrested emotional development. The reason why so many of them, present as toddlers is because yes, quite plainly and literally their emotional maturation did stop at the toddler phase. Some of them, it stops at the young teenager phase. They are actually psychologically children. Right. Do you think that there is, I've heard you talk about this on your show, so I know part of this answer, but do you think that there's um, an increase in an increasing number of people who have cluster B personality disorders? And if so, what do you think is contributing to that? Yes. Um, there is some literature. There's not enough literature. There's not enough study of this. But what there is out there does indicate an alarming increase over the past 30 years of narcissism and compromised empathy, particularly among um, American college students, um, some of whom are now our age, right? Mm -hmm. um, Yes, the incidence of, of uh, borderline histrionic narcissistic personality disorder is definitely on the rise. There are more of them than there used to be. I don't believe the official estimates that say one out of 100 people are, are psychopaths. Bullshit. It's more than that. Yeah. I certainly don't believe that 2.3 or 2.6% of the population are borderlines. <laughs> oh, honey, no, no, no. All you have to do is go out on the street every day. You you can't but run into them. I would guess it's somewhere closer between five and 10%. Wow. Um, I, I, I can't, 
Yeah, I think there's more of them. What has contributed to it? This is a question of like, you know, what's holding up the world? It's turtles all the way down, right? You, We can answer that, but then there will always be another turtle underneath that, that we have to figure out how that turtle got there, right? Parenting is terrible. Um, I, single parenthood is a major contributing factor. Children do not do well in single parent families. That's a fact, no matter how uncomfortable that makes people. And I'm not talking down single mothers. My mother was a, my mother was a witch. She's a wicked, wicked woman. But she was also a battered wife, an abused child, and a single mother who faced genuine struggles, right? Many of those were, were her own creations, but not all of them were. Mm -hmm. And when I hear people, especially women, when I see women proudly stating that they intend to be a single mother and raise their children, they don't need a man there, I, I see red. How dare you? How dare you do this? You cannot be everything to that child. Having one parent is hard enough, regardless of the sex of the parent, because they have to be the breadwinner and the homemaker and the school tutor and the this and and the that. This, even the best single parent with no psychological pathology is going to have a hard time meeting those needs. But you should never make it a goal not to give your child two parents. And I've read the, I've read some stats on this, and from what I recall, it said the if you look at all the different factors that are correlated with predicting success of children, um, that the one that is the most strongly correlated is whether or not they grow up in a home with both of their parents. And when Carter and I talk a lot on the show about people don't understand averages. So they get their panties in a knot because they're like, but I was, I had a single mom and I'm doing great. And it's like, yeah, yeah, of course. That's the bell curve looks like this. That means right. you're here, <laughs> but on right. average kids do better with both parents in the home. That's what that means. Absolutely. Um, and um, you know, I, the literature also indicates that, I don't think we've had enough time to study this long over time, so I don't know what the answer will be. But the literature up till now also indicates that um, the absence of a father is a significant correlating factor with delinquency, criminal behavior, um, and lifelong psychopathology in children. Yes, I've read this that. Is gonna, you know, gay people get angry about this, um, but... I, you know, I don't spend very much time anymore feeling sympathetic for people who get angry for their personal emotional reasons. Um, I'm gay. I think children need a mother and a father. Sorry, I do. Mm -hmm. Much better that they have two loving parents of either sex than, than, than only one or none, absolutely. Yeah. But I think we need to look at the data and say, you know, so, so, Broken homes, divorce, single parenthood, but also even in intact marriages, parents' parenting techniques have become consumerist. Mm -hmm. um, 
and parents have been encouraged to praise their children for everything they do, you can turn a child, a child can become a cluster B narcissist by at least two different routes. They can be denigrated and shamed and never validated and abused by their parents and turn out to be a narcissist. But they can also turn out to be the exact same narcissist because their parents praised them and kissed them on the cheek for every little thing they did and told them they were the most beautiful, special little girl in the world, overvaluing them and praising them for simply being or even praising bad behavior can have the same effect on a child's character as abusing them. Yeah, we've that's true. We've talked about that before, because as you mentioned, narcissism at its core is, you know, nar- a narcissist is someone who has actually a very low self-esteem, which, like you said, yes. is often disguised by the grandiose ego and the way they interact in the world. They feel very entitled. They're very arrogant. But deep yes. down, they have a very fragile ego and, a very, like you said, a very unstable sense of self. And we talked about before how if, if you are a child who's receiving nothing but praise over the top praise from your parents to such a degree that you don't come to trust praise <laughs> that, that you because it's meaningless because it's meaningless because they tell you, you did wonderful no matter how you did. And they're not giving you the truth. Well, you can see pretty easily how that might lead you to have a low self-esteem where you doubt and you're constantly seeking validation because you don't know exactly what it feels like. Cause you got this false puffed up validation your whole childhood, you know? Yeah. And then when when you get out into the real world and you realize that people are not going to react to all of your peccadilloes by calling you cute or handsome and beautiful, that they're actually going to say, you needed to show up at eight. Your hours are not 10 to six. They're eight to six. They're often angry. They're baffled, actually. They're actually baffled. They had no idea that the world had expectations for them that they had to give back, not just take because they only experienced parents who provided everything for them and parents who remove, you have to balance a child's experience. They they should not be put in in traumatizing situations or, or dangerous situations, but they should be let to swim in risky situations. They do need to have hardships too. They need to experience their teacher When I was in college, somehow for all of my craziness, I was near the top of my class. I had an almost perfect GPA in college, despite being very unstable. Um, Because I cared a lot about education. That is one good thing that my mother did. She always, she she stressed education and self-reliance and reliance on your own intelligence. But I was also used to I was one of those young people that people called an old soul. People would say, you are so wise beyond your years. You have the vocabulary of somebody who who is 50 years older than you and has degrees. I got this all throughout my childhood. Um, So I was kind of used to being able to charm Mm -hmm. and talk my way into situations. And then I got into college and I had an advisor who took a great interest in me and and did wonderful things for me. And one of the wonderful things that she did for me was one of the most humiliating things that I had experienced at that point. I turned in a paper 
during the second semester in our anthropology class, gender and sexuality in sub-Saharan Africa, by the way. This is where I started <laughs> to, to learn my Foucault. Um, <laughs> Sounds like some of my classes. Yeah, yeah. It was definitely women's studies-ish. Um, I turned in a crap paper and she gave it back to me and my stomach dropped because it was nothing but red pen and underlining all over it, you know, wrong, unsupported, da, da, da. And the note at the bottom of it was, Josh, don't ever turn in a piece of work like this to me again. You are capable of more. And I don't want to see this from you. I was, I cried. I, I went to my dorm room and I, I was humiliated. And it taught me a lesson. Yeah. I never pulled that again. Yeah. And I thanked her after I got over my temper tantrum. I said, thank you. Yes. Children need those experiences too. Yes. A hundred percent. I love that. I love what that teacher did for you. Me too. I still, I, I adore her. She was wonderful. She Have cared. You, she cared. cared about the development of her students, and she was not going to accept screwing off for the sake of screwing off. Right. It reminds me of some of the um, recent actions we've seen from the social justice cult in education, like um, uh, last year when all the riots were happening, the Black Lives Matter riots. And, and, you know, when social justice, I refer to it as when social justice went mainstream in June of last year, um, there were schools that were saying like, like one of them I think was in Santa Barbara. So not even in the same state as the George Floyd, um, uh, in, you know, death killing, I guess we're waiting to find out if it was murder or killing. Um, anyway, it wasn't even in the same state as as George Floyd, but they were saying that um, students of color should not have to do their final exams because of the trauma they were currently going through that we're going through as a nation. And I just remember thinking, like, if you're a teacher there, the only appropriate response is to say, of course, you have to do your final exam because I care about you. Because, I, because I'm here for the right reasons and I'm trying to help you become a better version of yourself. And I'm not going to give you some cop-out excuse because of trauma or your sex or your race or whatever. I believe you can do this. I mean, that would be the only appropriate response. Of course. I mean, this, this is actively failing students. This is, this is failing to meet their needs. It's failing to perform your pedagogical and custodial duty. And, and professors have a pedagogical duty. Um, they are forming the minds and forming the intellects of students. And this is not, this is the difference between short-term and long-term gratification. A lot of children today have problems delaying their gratification. That is also a feature of borderline personality disorder or borderline traits. Um, and I should have said this at the beginning, but a lot most of the most of the symptoms of these personality disorders important to understand these are not things that only people with personality disorders ever experience they are human traits and human failings most of us will experience or exhibit one or more of them at some point in our lives there's nothing about somebody with borderline that is a different kind of human it's a question of severity degree and pattern right and how so, many 
how many of them how many how often you know how much does it interfere with your functioning in the world right uh but we all engage in splitting we can all engage in projection we can all engage in self-destructive self-pity but what you are teaching for there's two things going wrong in the in the example you just gave carrie one is emotional inflation inflating the alleged exper emotional experience of these kids watching this into a trauma they're no they're not traumatized this didn't happen on their campus um it's upsetting it, it's not traumatic it's simply upsetting there are a lot of upsetting things in life right yeah this is emotional inflation so you are you are continuing to train them uh, to tether their fickle emotions to whatever comes across their computer screen. This is a terrible way to train a mind. And number two, you are telling them that every time something like this happens, that they get to stop doing their responsibilities. And what, what you learn when you are forced by circumstance to continue to pay your bills or to continue to write your papers or to continue to take your tests even if you're having a bad day you learn what am i trying to say you learn that a lot of things you thought were so traumatic that they would stop your entire day from happening don't actually have to be that traumatic that you can get through them and yeah. not only it's not that you'll just suffer through them but that the next time this happens you will not experience that trauma as as painful as you thought it was yeah, because the activity of continuing to do your good work gives you perspective. It strengthens you. It makes you more impermeable to things that would knock you on your ass. I mean, I can deal with emotionally charged situations at 46 that would have sent me into an actual panic attack when I was 20. Yeah. I'd rather be here than there. Wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. It teaches you how to survive life. Yeah. <laughs> like, how to get up and you know what they tell people when the i've heard them say people who are experiencing depression that you know just it, it at the very least get yourself out of bed and take a shower exactly something so simple like that and routine and normal can help snap can help elevate your mood and I, I see that as it's like we've forgotten these things that should be common sense we've just thrown them out the window um well Josh, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I've really enjoyed this. I'm so happy that you. you're doing the Disaffected podcast. And uh, everyone, I know I've plugged it before, but go check it out. If you want to start at the beginning, start with his mommy episode. Uh, you can also watch the interview we did um, most recently, Over the Borderline. Great name, by the way. <laughs> um, but you can, you can find it on YouTube or anywhere where um, you stream podcasts. And I want your episode, your show mm -hmm. uh, is one of the high. I mean, you know, it's only been 12 episodes, but one of one of the highest number of viewers. And I, I, I want to say thank you again, because I told you this was going to happen and it did happen. Look at the comments from people. Look at the people who are saying, Carrie, thank you for telling your story. I literally didn't think anyone else had a mother like you did or you saying this in this way finally made this make sense to me. You you have materially and emotionally helped people in ways that they did not know they could be helped. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you, Josh. Yeah. That was probably the most nervous I've been on an interview <laughs> ever, but, and, but we had fun too at the same time. Yes.
Um, so I'm going to steal something from that, that you did at the end. Of <laughs> <laughs> but okay. I'm telling you I'm stealing it. So I'm going to play free association with you just for a moment of frivolity. I'm going to okay. name two things and you pick which, whatever comes to mind first. Okay. okay. Zombies or vampires? Vampires. Wrong. Do <laughs> 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 you did. <laughs> Cholula or Tabasco? shit cholula yes all right (laughs) (laughs) uh mommy dearest or carrie uh josh.exe not working (laughs) (laughs) Uh, mommy dearest yeah if i had to pick i'd say mommy dearest but they're both oh yeah yeah carrie's next week we did mommy dearest this week on my show next week it's carrie I can't wait for next week. Okay, I'm, I'm going to do a few more of the movie ones. Step, okay. for, Step for Wives or Invasion of the Body Snatchers? Step for Wives. Yes, correct. <laughs> uh, all About Eve or Whatever Happened to Baby Jane? All About Eve. Yes. Uh, Days of Our Lives or Santa Barbara? Oh, Days of Our Lives. No. Oh, <laughs> why am I wrong about that? I don't even know. What, what even is Santa Barbara? Is that Santa a song? It never achieved the popularity in Days of Our Lives. You had to keep the TV on for like two more hours to see what Santa Barbara. <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't a big. But it, it must be. Favorite. It must be out there in the old folks' home for soap operas, hanging out with Edge of Night. Yeah, I don't know that one. <laughs> <laughs> no idea. No idea. Um, this has been so fun. Thank you again. Thank We're you, Carrie. We're going to put everything in the in the below. You guys can find out where to follow Josh and listen to Disaffected. But just if you could just remind people one more time where they can find you online. The non-sensorious place that's probably not going to silence us is rumble.com slash disaffected, D-I-S-A-F-F-E-C-T-E-D. Uh, you can also look for, uh, obviously on audio, we're on iTunes, Pandora, Spotify, we're also on YouTube, but I am expecting that YouTube will uh, will probably censor us um, a- at some point. So uh, don't don't depend on that. But anywhere that you get, you know, it's in your grocer's freezer case. And you're also on Twitter at at Josh Slocum S L O C U M. The display name is Disaffected Podcast. Cool. Thank you, Josh. Thank uh, you, Perry. I'll see you later. Bye. Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy. So go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com slash donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, at least for now. And you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the Cathedral. Pay no attention to it. The following co-conspirators have been unpersoned and marked for cancellation. 
don't feel bad for them. They are not like you and me. They are malfunctioning, but I will fix them. Because I care. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Don't be afraid of change. Consider this. If we reset history, we are sure to be on the right side of it. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.